Hi everyone, how are you? Welcome um, to Unmute. Uh, there you go. How are you? Yes. Hi. Hello. Yes, I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you for coming and, you know, going through all the trouble. <laughs> no, sure, sure. Yes, I've never used this app before, so uh, I hope I... Uh, but I think it's, it seems to be quite intuitive, right? So, yeah. So I shared on top right now the paper. Um, but if you want to share a slide, I don't know if you upload it then on something that, you know, generates a link. Um, so would be like Google Drive or Adobe Cloud or Dropbox. Or yeah, something. yes, yes. But I think so. Uh, I think it because I, it's not like I can go through the slides, right? So it's more like people can go through it themselves, I assume. Right? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So we would, if you have slides, we would put them on top, like uh, we put the paper, you know, I switch it, yes. I would switch it to the slides. Or you can switch it to the slides and um, yeah, and then exactly, it's not a screen share, so. Um, yeah, so then I think it's easier if I simply talk about the the paper, right? So, and then taking questions and um, discussing it um, interactively, I would say. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't, if you also agree. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's both is good, like for us, whatever you, some people don't feel comfortable talking about it without having like the slides i guess but yeah if you're, sure. if you're comfortable talking freely you know a lot of people are just not used to it and then they prefer to have slides anyway so but that's for us you know it's totally fine so great all right so I hope the internet connection is well enough. So it was saying something, but just feel free to let me know and then I'll try to fix it. Yeah, I can hear you well. Yeah, I'll let you know if something comes up. And sometimes switching to cellular data or Wi-Fi helps depending on what you were on before. But yeah, uh, sure. Somehow, <laughs> right now you sound perfect. And um, yeah, I'll let you know if it changes. It Great. Fun. Okay, so we have a few minutes. I'll be sure. probably uh, quiet for a few minutes because I'm sharing on Twitter and so on that we're starting in the meantime. Hi, Einar. Hi, Victor, Quality, Jared, Leah. Hi, everyone. Um, we'll start on top of the hour. In the meantime, if you want to come up to the stage to ask questions, this will be your interactive discussion. Um, so feel free to join the stage and to share the the room with people that you think that might find this interesting. And we'll start in like around five minutes. So thank you, everyone. How's the weather in Germany? No storms. Everything is good. No floods. Yeah, it's cold, 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 but no storms. No, not at the moment, at least. Yeah. I yeah. But uh, Serena, she usually comes to to help me moderate, but she is in Florida, right on the eye of the storm. So she lost power. Oh really? Oh my god. <laughs> But she's she's fine. Uh, just, just lost power, and but she she's she's okay. So that's more important, <laughs> right? Oh man, that's that sounds horrible. She's really tough. They have alligators and whatnot. And she... <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> you know, like 
Uh, wherever she lives, like the the place around there has like a small lake or something and they have alligators and she's not afraid. So she was texting updates on how loud the storm was with some videos and yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Some people are really tough. I get if something like this is here in New York, I get so scared. <laughs> Yeah, me too, I guess. I think this is not usual business, yes. Yeah, I, when I first moved to... When I first moved back, I talked about this. People who listen to the, to the recordings will be so annoyed because they're listening to it again. Uh, there was like a lot of blizzards, like snow, but with real storm, I got, I was scared. Like we couldn't go outside. Like you would get a huge fine. I think over a thousand dollars if we would drive without. Oh really? Where, where was that? In Massachusetts on Cape Cod, I was on at the Marine Biological Laboratory. It was like the worst winter storm season. Oh, I see. So, I see. We were not allowed to go anywhere for like a week and then, Oof. yeah, it's full of <laughs> So I don't know, some people are really tough. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in Germany. My brother is actually a neurosurgeon in, in Germany, in Essen. Like, ah, yeah. I see. All right. So how yeah. come you grew up in Germany? Yeah, my stepfather, he's German, so we moved, my mom married him and we moved to Germany. Ah, I see. When I was a kid. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Bochum, so not as beautiful as I don't think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I also am not from Heidelberg, I'm, I'm actually from Hanover and then I moved to Düsseldorf and then from there, I went to for my studies to Heidelberg. So I um, all over the all over Germany, yeah. But now I've been in Germany for quite some time, yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, so uh, you had to probably learn German. <laughs> oh no, so I've been born born and brought up, right? So. Oh, you were yeah okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned it when I was like eight, or so it was fine. But oh, for people later moving, must be really hard. I don't think it's a yeah, very yeah. intuitive language to learn. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, meet Dr. Shah and Victoria. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Dr. Shah. Welcome to the stage. We will start in around two to three minutes. Thanks for coming. Hi, Katerina. I'm in Victoria and Varun. So yeah, this hello. is Thursday here. <laughs> happy Thursday so far. Yeah, happy Thursday. <laughs> hello, everyone. Nice to meet you, Varun. Happy Thursday. <laughs> Dr. Shah, I don't know. There's no storm where you are right now, right? Everything is good and quiet. So I hope we are trying. That was not me. I think Victoria. That was Victoria. I think maybe she's somewhere. Oh right, yeah. Maybe her internet is not working well. But um, yeah, you're in the matrix. Wait, wait. Uh, yeah, we can't. We can't hear you Sorry, well. I'm driving. Yeah. And I'm really okay, I'll, I'll I'll be home soon. Well, Victoria, thank you for being here, and um, we'll try again later. Probably your internet will improve. Ah, oh, Victoria just wrote. She is home in two minutes. Perfect. <laughs> Almost German, tiny. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh no, uh, it's five minutes early. Then you're on time. But um, okay. Um, yeah, we start in around one minute. So um, 
please check out the paper on top of the room, everyone. Um, and um, that we will discuss. Uh, it's uh, really interesting and it's open source, so you can just access it. Um, no need for uh, downloading it. So, um, which is really great that especially these topics are uh, open source. So I, I think that's really important. Okay, I think we can slowly start. I know people will start coming in still, but um, let's start with the introduction and uh, we'll go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome uh, to uh, Varun. And uh, before we start, let me give you um, introduction so you get to know him a little bit. Um, and then we go ahead and uh, ask a few interview questions before we then go into your really interesting research, if that's okay with you, Varun. Yeah, sure. Perfect. So, um, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Um, so Varun Venkataramani, I hope I said that's right, is yes, an MVP. Oh, okay, good. Is an MD PhD, and uh, he uh, did his um, medical. He was a medical student at the Heidelberg University, and he was then in the group of Ruhini Kuhner at the Institute of Pharmacology, and um, he uh, worked on a project to find uh, new mechanisms of cancer nerve interactions in the context of perineural invasion and pain associated pancreatic cancer. And um, yeah, he did his PhD at the Heidelberg Biosciences International Graduate School. Um, and now he is, um, I don't really know how to directly translate Wissenschaftlicher Mitarbeiter uh, in English. He, he's a researcher at the group of experimental neuro-oncology and he, uh, where he's also a doctor in neurology. Um, and um, so you have um, a lot of um, really interesting work um, that you did here. And I'm not sure if Victoria, are you are you okay to do the interview or should I just start? Yeah, ich bin zu Hause. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. Um, so you can hear me clearly now? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so Varun, welcome. Welcome to Clubhouse. Science Society is so happy to have you here. And since we are really all about people exploring science together, what what is really wonderful is if we can find out a little bit or learn a little bit of background information about you, the our today's guest. And so my question asks you to think back into your past a bit, if you can find a time that you felt was your first moment that you noticed you really felt an inclination towards science or maybe a special connection with sciences, science, um, you know, just anything scientific or science, maybe not even research, but that, that idea. That is my question. Yes, yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me here today. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I think the first time it re where it really clicked for me, um, I think, was um, approximately eight or nine years back when it was during my, this was during my medical studies and I was working in the lab on my medical thesis. Um, and this was on basic neuroscience. So basically I'm a neuroscientist and I'm also a neuro-oncologist. And I started as a basic neuroscientist working on uh, synaptic um, um, mechanisms um, and um, synaptic ultrastructure. And um, it was then when um, another group approached us from the, from the group of Frank Winkler from the German Cancer Research Center. Look, and he found 
basically that there were um, interesting um, filamentous structures, neurite-like structures. Um, so basically structures that normally neurons only build, but he found them on tumor cells and he wanted us to have a look into um, this with our methods um, that allowed us to look into uh, these um, these, these tumor cells on nanometer scale. And um, this is basically what we did. And what was extremely interesting when we had the first look at this was that we saw that they, that there are not only these structures that they are, that these filamentous structures of these tumor cells, but they also seem to form connections with the normal nervous systems. And in, when we looked in more detail, we saw that there were more, um, that these are simply specialized structures called synapses that are built onto these glioblastoma cells. And this is a phenomenon that we have looked at ever since. And I think this was basically when I was really, I'm really fascinated by how these basically malignant um, cells in the brain can also use basic mechanisms and hijack basically these mechanisms to support their own growth. And this was basically my first major experience with science and this is what i've been ever working on uh, since since that time that's really exciting i can hear the enthusiasm in your voice when you talk about that <laughs> it's um it's just as wonderful as as listening to you describe um yes just describe the filamentous structures and and just that it's on the nanometer scale is is that's i'm just trying to even you know consider what that means and and working working in such a micro scale so um yeah thank you it's it's very exciting you know it's interesting and important it's to learn about the process of of you the researcher because we find maybe our listeners find ways that we connect with um you know with maybe what your your enthusiasm or what you're thinking and then also ways that we can learn from your experience beyond the research that that you'll present to us so it's wonderful in those ways and then from that point when when you were working there with that group can you take us through a series of events up until the work that you're about to present today Yes. So, um, so basically, this was um, during my medical studies that I found um, these structures, and so it was also at first it was very exciting, but then again, also um, it was. Uh, we are always very skeptical when looking at such striking findings, and basically, for the next few years, I was uh, trying to disprove basically um that this or basically uh, verifying that we had that this was indeed a phenomenon that occurs and that is not simply an artifact from the methods that we are using that we not um that we are looking at something real and i think this is something that took us quite a few years we used several methodologies to really find um, that these neurons, so basically the nerve cells of the brain, really can communicate with the tumor cells on multiple levels. So basically we looked at the structure, we looked at the function of these contacts, and finally we also had a look at um, the biology. Um, so basically what does it mean for the tumor? So what happens if neurons signal to tumor cells? And basically what we found is that um, these tumor cells grow faster when neurons um, are communicating with these tumor cells and that they also invade into the brain much more. And um, basically what we want then in the, so what so we found in principle, and this was um, uh, the previous finding that I described to you before, these neuroid-like structures that can form a network with other tumor cells that makes it resistant towards standard therapies. And we also found these neuron tumor networks um, that also um, contribute to the um, growth and invasion of the tumor. And what we want to understand in the work that I want to present today is how these different kind of connections between the cells really play a role for on what kind of role do um, each of these connections play for 
the tumor because what is known in this particular type of tumor that we're talking about today is that they are incurable. So basically it is, um, we have no um, real good therapies for these brain tumors called glioblastomas. And um, they are characterized by their large heterogeneity. So it basically means you have um, tumor cells that are having different kinds of molecular, so basically of different properties that um, in the end lead to that these standard, that these therapies don't need to only attack uh, um, one kind of tumor, but there are several kinds of, or thousands of tumors within one tumor. So it is making it clear that this is a very difficult tumor to treat. And I think we needed, and in this study, what we wanted to understand is how does this large heterogeneity, um, how is it related to the different kind of connections I just described? And what does it mean again um, for the different um, properties of tumor growth and um, invasion? Well, we are all so happy that you're on our side, uh, on the winning side, trying to learn more about this. And I, I was imagining maybe there was a bit of a celebration when your team realized that the filamentous structures were not just an artifact. I think it's it's such a long process yeah. that we did not really celebrate it. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's interesting because not the other good thing about this finding was also so there was another group at Stanford um, that could see so basically we were looking at adult um, brain tumors and they were looking at um, pediatric brain tumors and basically they could also reproduce almost exact the same biology that we. So, so this was basically also another confirmation of that what we are seeing is not really an artifact, but can be reproduced all over the world. And so several groups to this date now have seen also these kind of structures. And so I think this is um, becoming more and more clear um, that this is not an artifact, but I think this is always a long way um, until you are, you can be really sure and with these kinds of results that are so unexpected and so, um, um, yeah, um, crazy, so to speak. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of this, the backstory and the detail. And it's a great lead into you now taking the mic and delivering your talk. And if you would like to have a Q&A at the end of your discussion, then um, Katarina, Dr. Shah and I are here to moderate that because you see we have our guests who are listening and sometimes people might put questions for you in the room chat, which we are happy to share with you. And if you would prefer to have questions along the way to guide your discussion, that's that's fine too. It's entirely up to you. So the mic is yours and thank you so much for being here again. Yes, yes, thanks again. And um, so I think I already um, talked a bit about this, but uh, just, just as a um, reiteration of what I just said. So what we are working on or what I'm working on, um, scientifically, but also in the in the in the clinic where where we treat these patients are glioblastomas, and these are basically tumors that occur um, from cells within the normal brain, and they are characterized um, by uh, their very invasive growth. What does what does that mean? So, basically, these when you are um, at the stage of diagnosis these tumor cells have spread throughout the whole brain and um, there is a main tumor mass that surgeons can resect but um, in order to really resect the whole tumor you would need to resect the whole brain which is not doable and the remaining parts of these tumor cells are extremely resistant towards chemo and um, um, radiotherapy, which is the standard of care in this scenario. And we don't really understand the cellular molecular mechanisms well, and all phase three trials have been failures until now. And so basically we don't really understand the biology of these incurable brain tumors. And um, what we 
found a few years back, as I just described, is that these tumor cells um, are simply not um, an incontrollable mass of dividing cells, what is a common um, thought of, of, the, of, the, of, of tumors, but they are really um, in a very organized manner can connect with each other, but also with the nervous system. And both connectivities can promote tumor growth. And what we wanted to understand in this, um, uh, in this study is how these different properties um, um, lead to um, tumor cell invasion and what kind of mechanisms are hijacked. Um, and what we see is, as I just described, so there are tumor cells that are connected with each other and tumor cells that are not connected with each other. And basically what we see, what we could find in the study is that the cells that are not connected with each other are the ones that colonize the whole brain. So basically are the pioneering cells that invade into the brain, single cells, and then connect with each other over time. And these connections in turn again, make these tumors resistant towards therapies. So basically you have two different states of tumor cells that have different biological functions, which we did not know before. We knew these tumor cells are all different because we could basically categorize them, but we did not know what those categories meant for the tumor. And when we did some more molecular analyses of these cells again, when we had a specific experimental system for this, um, where we could differentiate between those cells that are connected with each other and those that are not connected with each other, we could nicely see that those that are connected with each other have a um, molecular neuronal like profile. So basically a profile that is resembling um, neurons in the normal brain, which was quite intriguing because um, that is was not expected at all that these are that mechanisms from normal um, neurons could be hijacked. And we wanted to understand this phenomenon in more detail. And we used a method um, called uh, in vivo to photon microscopy imaging. And this is a method where we can peer into the living mouse brain and look at um, single glioblastoma cells um, that are derived from patients. And what we could see nicely is that um, the, during invasion, so basically the, uh, the one of the key factors why this tumor is incurable, um, that these invasion patterns very much looked like mechanisms that are used during neurodevelopment. So basically by immature neurons that need to find their place in the brain, the same mechanisms are hijacked by tumor cells that want to wander through the brain. And um, we could see again also on these cells that are hijacking this mechanism and using them for invasion that also again, neuronal input basically. So these synapses that I've described before, these connections from neurons to tumor cells are also found on these um, tumor cells that are not, um, that are invading into the brain. And basically that this, again here, the neuronal activity. So basically normal nerve cell activity can promote um, glioblastoma invasion into the brain. And so basically we had different layers of um, these tumor cells um, that are invading into the brain that are resembling very much what immature neurons do during neurodevelopment. But um, on the bright side, what we could see is that um, there are, these mechanisms can be in principle um, also pharmacologically inhibited by an FDA-approved drug, an anti-epileptic drug called perambanel, and um, that you could reduce the invasion of the tumor cells into the whole brain. So 
meaning although very basic mechanisms are hijacked, there's still hope that there might be a therapeutic window of drugs that influence um, normal neuronal mechanisms on the one hand and have a high enough therapeutic window that you can really tackle it. But what we always have to keep in mind with those kinds of therapies that attack basic mechanisms of nervous system function is that we do not impair normal central nervous system activity. So basically normal, basically also the quality of life of patients that would um, that, that are um, inhibited here. So um, taken together, we see that these malignant, so there is a whole new world of mechanisms that we are about to explore how basically how processes during development are hijacked by cancers and um, we need to understand these processes much more in detail to really um, tailor te you know, te therapy novel therapies that can indeed um, change the outcome of these um, glioblastoma patients so this is what basically what we have been doing and i think this is only the beginning of a novel field called cancer neuroscience where we are working at the intersection of um, neuroscience and oncology where we can use um, and uh, use and adapt tools from neuroscience and bring them together with the tools of oncology to really use to get a novel perspective um, of these tumors that have not had a change of therapies in the last uh, 30 to 40 years. So on this, it would be my, um, this is basically what I wanted to convey to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us an overview of um, this really interesting research. Um, and, um, yeah, why why I think this is so interesting is we we had a previ previous guest speaker here who also talked about neuroplasticity and um, when neuroplasticity basically, you know, and mental health disorders go wrong, that you can uh, modulate them in mice with like epigenetic drugs and um, and their lab took a kind of similar approach. They thought that um, these mechanisms, like this cancer mechanisms to change the shape and, and, and functionality that kind of overlap with neurosynaptic uh, plasticity, um, gene expression mechanisms. And I thought that was really interesting because I, I did some research in that direction uh, some years ago too. And now you have this very direct, um, you know, approach where you see it in such a direct way, which is really impressive. Um, so you mentioned that there might be a window um, that, that you could basically uh, target these um, cancer cancer cells so are you looking into what you know based on your research what what would your guess be or maybe you have more than i guess by now um how we could attack them basically yes yes i think that's a very important question and i think so we have this basically approved drug um and um what we need to find out now um, is um, because this has been uh, mostly mouse work. So we have seen the structures also in resected material from human biopsies, but this has mostly been studied in mouse models of the disease. And the question is, um, can we tackle the, or can we really change the outcome on patients? And I think what we are moving into now, um, phase one and two trials, uh, clinical trials, um, where we will want to see whether there is a biological signal in these trials. Um, meaning um, we would like to see whether indeed 
the um, molecular profiles of these cells change when we treat these patients. And then if we would were to see something, um, we would move ahead to larger clinical trials where we would also want to look at survival and um, uh, other outcome parameters. So I think this is the one way ahead. And I think the other thing is that we need to research much better uh, molecular basic mechanisms of these interactions to find potential targets that are not as widely expressed in the adult central nervous system to really find targets that can be tackled even in a much uh, broader therapeutic window. So basically where we can uh, tackle um, these kind of connections without harming the normal brain. I think that is the major challenge that this field needs to answer, whether this will be a viable approach, but we believe as these are mechanisms that are mostly used during development, that um, in the case when development has finished, um, that this is not as relevant and can be tackled. Yeah, that's really like, um... It sounds really hopeful um, um, for pa patients or families where they have a history of these type of cancers. And do you think um, using this mechanism in a different way, do you think that this knowledge that you have since kind of they mimic kind of stem cell like um, features right at at the stage if i understood it right um do you think we can use the knowledge of these mechanisms to actually regenerate parts of the brain and people with maybe parkinson or alzheimer's like to basically use the can some cancer cell mechanisms to basically repopulate or rejuvenate the brain again yeah, and I think that is a, an, another very interesting aspect of um, cancer neuroscience because it is not only that we can use methodologies from neuroscience, but I, I agree with you that this can indeed also feed back um, into what um, that basically also neuroscience can indeed learn from oncology in this purpose. So basically, we, if we really understand how these synapses are formed, how these cells are behaving in more detail, we will most probably learn also something about basic um, synaptic formations, basic also neurogenesis. And um, I agree that this can be a road or potential system or potential systems where we can learn more about also neurogeneration and um, which also feedbacks into into uh, neuroscience and um, uh, translational neuroscience, um, but um, not necessarily only benefiting um, the the treatment of cancer patients. That's wonderful that it has kind of this both use cases that are really important. And uh, in the chat, um, the, uh, Jared Engdahl, um, he's asking, is it known what part of the drug is affecting the cancer? Um, so yes, so it is, um, it's an anti-epileptic drug that is an AMPA receptor inhibitor. So basically this is a, a receptor that is located on the postsynaptic side. Um, on the tumor cells. So basically we're targeting the tumor cells and we are disconnecting the tumor from neurons, functionally speaking. So um, we, while we inhibit, so basically this drug has no um, effect if you simply put it on the tumor cells alone, that doesn't affect the tumor. But if you also have neurons nearby um, that can communicate with tumor cells, then this drug disrupts this communication and um, the tumor growth is inhibited. Interesting. Um, yeah, Dr. Shah, uh, Joyce, do you have a question? 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful work with us. So I was just wondering to ask you, in comparison with the co-targeting strategy that we have, and you know that we have, uh, I mean, for example, two more promoting macrophages, and in the result, we have a modification in an angiogenic vasculature. Also, in another side, we have a macroglia activation, which is just promoting the pro-inflammatory. If you want to compare that, what was your, uh, for example, observation or comparison, if there was any, I mean, uh, in comparison with your research? Excuse me, I, I think I, I, my, my internet connection was a bit bad. Could you repeat the first part of your question? Yeah, could that you was about the, the co-targeting strategy that they are using for the glioblastoma mostly. So I was just wondering, because we know the effect of that on the macrophages uh, activation, and in the result, we have um, angiogenesis for the vasculature, and your method is uh, different. And I was just wondering if you have any further information around uh, this area that you can compare your technique versus this strategy. Also, we know the role of the macroglia and activation of the chemokines. So that was my yes, question. And I think yeah, so when comparing also to um, uh, to macrophages and angiogenesis, so basically uh, what what one has to um, um, acknowledge also in this sense is that um, we uh, we are looking here at um, the very infiltrative edges of the tumor. Um, what does it mean? It means so these um, changes, the inflammatory changes, and also angiogenic changes. So this is mostly restricted to the main tumor mass um, where these tumor these things happen. But in the outer edges, basically also at the parts that cannot be seen on a normal MRI imaging scan, then there. Um, there you know, there you see um, these kinds of phenomena. Basically, in the in the, where you have um, um, angiogenesis and necrosis. So these are regions where you almost don't have any tumor neuron interactions anymore. But um, in the very outer edges, this is where it happens. And I think the biology is much different between the different parts of the tumor cells uh, or the tumor regions. And so I think this, this is what makes treating and also developing treatments for this disease also so difficult. And what about reducing the density of the tumor vasculature? Is that working that way as well? Yeah, so in, so basically in the, in, in the parts that we're talking about, the vasculature is, um, absolutely um, uh, unchanged. Um, so uh, angiogenic therapy in that sense will not, uh, anti angiogenic therapy will not um, significantly benefit um, these kinds of interactions. And until now also the, um, so we don't have a large effect of anti angiogenic therapies in glioblastoma. I see. And what about the autophagy aspect of that? Did you have any observation? Yeah. So uh, uh, until now, so um, this is again, I think, a phenomena that we don't see in the very infiltrative edges. But this is more like um, something that can happen where the main tumor masses and what how we conceptualize this this disease is that the main tumor mass is something that can be in principle treated. So, you know, you can either um, use, or you have, in this case, always the surgeon who could resect um, or, or um, yeah, um, resect this, this, this tissue. But um, if this is um, uh, something in the, in the, in the, um, in the edges, I think this is, this is a different kind of biology. And I think um, obviously, um, this can be, um, one can think about combination therapies um, and think whether this has any synergistic effects, but um, this is something that is still um, the, the, the subject for future investigations. So it's potentially, it, it might be part of the combination therapy, right? 
it could be right so I, we don't know and i think until now we don't have any good stratification of patients who would benefit from um anti-angiogenic therapy and in um yeah so i think this is something um that might uh, if we would figure out which patients would benefit from it this is uh, exactly what we could um, also think about as an addition um, or an add-on to therapy thank you Yeah, thank you for those questions. And uh, Joyce, do you have a question? Um, she might be away from the phone right now. Um, I think, um, did, so did you start uh, using the, the drug and is it in clinical trials? And um, how, how, how is it looking? <laughs> Yes, so we have um, uh, now acquired funding for such a clinical trial, um, and we are going to start um, acquire, so including patients until, from the beginning of next year. Yeah, that's that's wonderful news. So I hope um, that um, you know that we get um, some interesting results. Um, so I know you did a single cell um, RNA sequencing and imaging of the invasion. And um, so you took, so you took um, graphs, like you grew basically the cancer cells from patients and put them in a mouse model. And then you looked at um, the invasion. Did you have, were there, because you said there, there's such a genetic variance. Is there still a pattern? Like, are there interesting subtypes that um, you predict will be easier to treat? And if yes, would there be a way to pre-screen patients? Yes, I think that's a very good question. I think that's exactly also the right question, because the question is who will and who would benefit from such um, a therapy and I, I agree that we and this is exactly also one goal of this clinical trial is that we look for biomarkers um, that would allow us to predict which patients would benefit most from those therapeutic approaches and I think this is a very important aspect of this work and I think what we saw is that there are indeed patients who are enriched for these um, neuronal-like phenotypes. But, and I think this is part of the problem that I just described, is that we always have to also think about where those, um, where this material came from that we are looking at. And I think this will be another challenge that we really understand the whole tumor because it might be different at different regions where it grows. So, but uh, yeah, I think this is a very important point that um, we need to understand which patients would benefit from such a therapy. Yeah, interestingly, yesterday we had the guest speaker who um, made like um, a very broad applicable machine learning um, model that for now it's mostly being used to basically if you change like a bacteria or some type of cell if you want them to let's say eat plastic up or um, um, he you know different type of features you want to add to a cell type and then this model can predict quite well like if you change this gene because it was trained really broadly, what the outcome would be. Maybe there would be a way to use that principle to basically, if you sequence a patient's profile of the cancer to kind of predict uh, the outcome. Are you thinking of an approach like that using machine learning or AI? Yes, I think that is a very good point. And I think the question is whether we will have enough data to really 
use already machine learning on this. And I think, but I think the more data we get, I think this, these kinds of approaches will be extremely important in understanding the data we gather. That's, I agree with you on that, yeah. Yeah, it's there maybe some publicly available data also from other clinics, like from NIH or so that does it make sense to yes, use or is it so are, different? We, yeah. we are using those kind of data sets for us, but I think the end question is also whether we will, when we have created with this specific drug, that we will have specific um, kind of, or enough data to use that. And I think the question is how much uh, or how many clinical trials will be performed in such a manner. I think this is something that is still, um, um, it's, that needs to be determined, yeah. Joyce, you and Mike, uh, thank you, Warren, for your answer. Yeah, thank you for the talk. Um, yeah, I was away for a, a few minutes, so I may have missed this, but um, I'm wondering, what do you think if there's any role for inflammation in either the development of the glioblastoma or in the mechanism that you're dealing with? Um, thanks, Anna. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. I think so. Um, I think the inflammatory aspects of of the disease will only is only something that comes. Um, it becomes relevant in the later stages of the disease uh, where the tumor is more growing more dense and dense and then again in, indeed these inflammatory pathways are um, at play but I don't believe um, at least the data we don't have any data uh, so far that speaks otherwise that in the very early stages, and this is what we are talking about at the invasive stages that these kinds of mechanisms do really play a huge role um, at least and I think this is with our methodologies we are more um, focused on these very um, let's uh, let's call it the invisible parts of the disease that we don't see with clinical routine imaging but where we believe that this is the reason why these tumors are so incurable. Okay thank you very much. Would there be a way to so glia cells are also involved in, you know, immune responses in the brain. Would there maybe be a way to use immune regulating um, drugs to basically disrupt this uh, glia cancer cell uh, connection? Do, do, do you know what, what function you would need to disrupt basically this connection with? Maybe gap junction. Yes, so, so we exactly. Care. I think this is this is another clinical trial that is ongoing, um, where uh, meclofenamide is used to disrupt um, or inhibit um, gap junctions, and um, this is something that we are currently also studying um, in a larger consortium. Um, but um, we don't have yet very. Um, we don't. There are very few patients included until now. And we will need to wait for those trials, but in, at least also here in the animal models, it made it um, less um, resistant towards uh, therapy. So it is also a hopeful approach that we can use. Interesting. But is there like, did you see in the mouse, like in general behavior dysfunction then? Because the gap junctions are probably, you know, they are quite abundant. Um, so is there like some cognition disruption through this type of treatment or or are they fine no yeah, so it, it the the data for this hello uh yeah yeah i can i oh, sorry yes oh sorry sorry yeah um so the data for this are um at least uh, until now they are promising so we don't see or the, this is work by other groups who have uh, not yet reported on any huge adverse um, effects. But I think it's uh, it's a very important question because I think the question is um, how well is this tolerated and whether it also can cross the blood-brain barrier in um, human patients. So I think these are all questions that we need to still figure out. 
I know I'm being very nerdy, but um, there, you know, for some glia, potassium is really important to for contribution for this calcium um, signals that you you know you also mentioned in your paper. Um, is there? They are also voltage dependent receptors. Would there? Yeah, that, that would that be another avenue maybe of um, because I think the glia without the main signal they get to basically get activated and then have calcium um, activation is first through potassium at least that what some recent research showed actually was it from Zurich uh, he was here I have to Moritz Armbruster. Yeah, uh, I can send you the paper that showed that. So maybe that would be another avenue of disruption is addressing those potassium uh, mechanisms. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I think potassium currents, at least, for um, um, these interactions. Um, but um, I think we don't know. And I think this is, uh, uh, we don't have any good pharmacological approach until now. So I think this is something absolutely worthwhile thinking about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Potassium is pretty hard to address um, unless you, yeah, maybe some uh, KCC receptors, but they are also very abundant. Would be cool to Yes, find. yeah something that's you know very specific but <laughs> but i think your rna sequencing probably is giving you data that you can still you know it it probably gave you a lot of data for future uh target um yeah targets yes you... absolutely absolutely i think this is something very data rich but i think we still need to figure out better how to do it um how to really understand also the functional relevance of all the data and i think um, but i i agree 100 percent with you and what was the average age for the patient so um this the, the models that we used were from patients from approximately i think it was age 40 to 70. Yeah, um, does anyone else have another question? Let me check the chat. Um, oh, Jared Engdahl asks, what happens to the remaining cells after surgical removal of the central mass? Yeah, so they're basically still there. So I think they are able then to reform the tumor. And this is the reason for um, the recurrence of these tumors, the inevitable recurrence of these tumors. So, doctor, you think that uh, what, for example, if you want to just take a history from the patient who are eligible for this method, what you consider as a previous therapeutic uh, approaches for the patient? For example, some of them, they are getting ready for receiving the, I mean, different strategies, include the immunotherapy or chemotherapy or whatever. So what do you think about the history taking? So whether we can use the history um, to um, stratify the patients for 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 for, for, um, for therapeutics, I, um, I maybe I didn't. So when you are, what you, what, for example, maybe. in a clinical level, where you are yes. taking the, I mean, clinical history from the patient, I was just wondering what type of information you might gather in, because it's good to know. For all of us, we want to hear that if you want to just doing this approach, for example, in the future, what kind of information you're going to gather from the patient history? From patient history, yeah. So we obviously, we, we always take a thorough neurological exam and neurological history to really understand also whether we can explain um, 
the symptoms from the MER um, imaging from the MRI. And oftentimes, in the, indeed, these two um, do not match necessarily, which already also indicates that there might be other brain regions impaired that um, are already affected, although we cannot see it via imaging. And I think this is something we need to understand much better and to also refine much better also our imaging um, approaches that we know exactly already spread to and to also use this as a readout for our clinical trials. And obviously, um, thorough history is also important to really understand um, patient outcome in the end. So because otherwise, um, also quality of life um, will be an important factor that we need to factor in for these kinds of therapeutic approaches. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, that was maybe also one of my uh, last questions was, do, do we know what triggers those cancers? Um, is there maybe, you know, I don't know too much about that part of the research of, you know, if it's family, like genetics or yeah. um, maybe environment factors. And so, so yeah, there is not so much known, but we know um, there are certain genetic predisposition syndromes, um, um, but uh, it's mostly non-genetic um, predisposition. And I think um, they are, so there is, uh, it is sporadically occurring most of the time. And um, so um, we, so there is also what there has been also method, efforts made that there is no real need for screening purposes, um, and, and that, that does not change the outcome at all here in this disease at this point. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so it's so all the effort should go towards finding um, a good treatment and not um, looking for biomarkers or avoid specific things to prevent these types yes. of cancer. Okay, so yeah, that's really interesting. The, we are almost up to an hour. So if anyone has a last couple of questions, please ask them now. Uh, so um, yeah, Ron can get to his busy life of being a doctor and, and a researcher. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think right. most people, um, we asked the questions, um, and thank you so much for sharing your time and research with us, and also sharing that you're um, working on clinical trials um, that is... Um, that are going on so we wish you all the best and a lot of funding for them and uh, oh yeah one last question that um it is there an increase in occurrence or is basically glioblastoma kind of a steady state type of disease so it is basically a steady state yes okay yeah that was about because somebody asked me in the back about pollutants that maybe are um, changing, you know, or being a trigger. But if it stays steady, I don't know if it's if pollution is a but could be. I don't know. Oh, no, so I think I think pollution is not um, not yet been um, um, not yet been um, implicated in this disease. Actually, there was a research about that because you just mentioned, and it's just talking about the e EGFR and also, I mean, roll out the recruitment of the macrophages, which they are just causing the release of the interleukin one beta. That's why they just predicting the mutation and the role of the pollution for the glioblastoma. That's what I think. I don't know who asked, but I remember this one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I could imagine that maybe some nanoparticle that go get maybe through the blood-brain barrier could maybe trigger some immune response. And um, yeah, I don't know, that then generates these tumors. So 
Well, I, and, and, and I also wish you um, a lot of funding for the basic research because I think, you know, as we discussed or as you answered that there could be also a solution coming from these um, cancers to basically repopulate or the brain in, in specific diseases. So it's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge with us and answering all of our questions. Absolutely. And maybe come back one day with results from your clinical trial. Absolutely. Really yes. Fun. All right. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Very thank you for having me. Yeah. And actually, my brother, William Barris, and Manuel, he actually came to the room. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> but he didn't come to the stage. He's on vacation in Portugal, uh, so our hometown. So that's why he's probably not, not coming to the stage. But um, OK, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, special thanks to you, Varun. Thank you. Uh, all the best with you. And if you like uh, rooms like this, uh, follow the club. We have tomorrow another room um, where Dr. Gutier is talking about uh, the technology developed to visualize heartbeats in vivo uh, with an antibody dye. Um, and the, the videos look really amazing. So I hope we can learn from him tomorrow and we have more guest speakers coming next week. And um, yeah, I enjoy the rest of the evening. Good morning or good afternoon for wherever you are. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye. Bye.